Very welcome to this um, public event for a very distinguished visitors of ours, uh, Igor Lucic, uh, who's uh, the, one of the candidates, I guess now 11, maybe 12 candidates for the UN Secretary General. He's, of course, um, has a long political career in, in Montenegro, and um, I, as you probably know, I spent some time in the EBRD before coming to LSE, and, and uh, I had the pleasure of visiting Montenegro and know the stature that uh, Igor Lucic has in, in the country, and, and uh, now most recently as foreign minister, but also as, as a, a prime minister for, for a period. So um, you're here, of course, as, as a candidate, but it's also you're here because you're part of a process that is, uh, I think, very important and, and very new. So the idea that there is now a competitive process for this uh, job, the, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, is, is, is new. As we were saying before, you know, last time you weren't even allowed to campaign inside the UN headquarters. Now there are you know, hearings and, and uh, you, you're doing the tour uh, around the world and I know that the other candidates, and you probably cross each other because there are certain countries that are more important than others. Uh, actually, that part of the process is not so transparent, I guess. It's, uh, so it's, it's obviously the Security Council is, is, is very important and, and um, there has been a kind of rotation in, in how that process, so who had what role in that process. And, and my understanding at this time, it's uh, Russia that proposes and then the United States has the important role in, in whether uh, this candidate is allowed to go further. So there is still some from lack of transparency, perhaps, of, of this process, and of course also about the considerations that ultimately determine this election. But, but I thought we would today have a chance to talk a bit about the process, but also about you know, the substantive issues that, um, that um, uh, come up. Uh, I, when I was at the EBRD, we had actually a competitive race. It was the first time that international financial institutions had had a competitive race. We had five candidates, and, and uh, I can tell you that looking at that from the inside, it was both very informative and, and in some respects also highly unpredictable. Uh, we, so maybe this is going to be true for this process too. We, we, we really don't know at the moment. Uh, and... and the fact that there are so many candidates and there are so many considerations that go into to, um, to the um, selection. So, so um, I don't think I want to take more of, of your time, and I really want to get a, a conversation going um, after your initial remarks. So please, the floor is yours. Shall I do it from here? Or yeah, where are you more comfortable? Maybe because of the room, yeah, probably it's better if you, you stand. But thank you so much. Yeah. It is... Uh, uh, and good afternoon to all. It is really great pleasure to uh, be actually back uh, at the LSE. Um, some uh, years ago when I was in uh, bilateral visit to, to, to London, uh, I also took the opportunity of addressing uh, the LSE students. Uh, and uh, it was really a great, uh, great opportunity to exchange views on uh, what was uh, currently most uh, uh, interesting topics with regards to Montenegro's uh, development of foreign policy. This time around, it's about something else, as you said. It's about uh, the UN's uh, competition, which is going on. Uh, Sorry. Uh, well, uh, Friedrich August von Hayek must have felt very strange mm. when he first came to uh, give lectures at the LSE, given mm. the Fabian beginnings of the school. Mm. Uh, and uh, Hayek, Professor Hayek inspired a lot of my academic work. Um, and uh, for me, it's also a bit strange, but I'm also enormously proud to be able to take part in this uh, current uh, uh, activity of uh, presenting our cases for mm. the next UN Secretary General's job, uh, because it, happened, it, it, it takes place 10 years after we restored independence. It was 2006. Mm. I was finance minister then. And 
10 years after, uh, I'm actually in the position to take part in uh, this uh, incredibly interesting and exciting endeavor. Uh, but what makes it very interesting also about the Austrian School of Economy mm-hmm. is that you know, Austrians claim that uh, although we all tend to uh, reach the equilibrium, it never happens because there's a new knowledge that uh, pops up every now and again, distresses equilibrium, and then we start to uh, do it again. I think actually this is the moment at which we may find a lot of similar vectors at play, in, in, at play and which make it which, which, which make it that the international context is so difficult, so uh, turbulent. But at the same time, there are so many interesting uh, processes also taking place. And that's exactly what I wanted to uh, provide with uh, when I uh, decided to join this competition. And when we were asked to prepare vision statements ahead of the hearings that took place almost two months ago. I was actually the first in line to be examined by the General Assembly. It was really a great, great pleasure. But it was also a particular, a particular event where it was new for everyone in that room. It started as a resolution that was passed some half a year ago. And uh, it was decided that the new candidates and uh, everybody was encouraged to uh, show early nominations. Uh, candidates were encouraged to come uh, to the General Assembly, present their vision statements, discuss in two hours slot uh, all the aspects of the process, and then uh, continue with their, with their activity. And it has already been a tremendously important step forward in making this whole process uh, different, making it making it very new. But we were asked by the general president of the General Assembly to put together a maximum 2,000 words visual statements. So thinking of how to do it, actually I decided that I need to give it a bit different flavor. And what I wanted to put emphasis on was the needs of youth. Because uh, according to many research, I'm sure at LSE you do a lot of research that show that this is probably by far the best uh, uh, possible time in history a human being can be born. But as it stands, uh, in contrast with many other uh, uh, growing uh, challenges, uh, growing threats, look at uh, 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 international context, uh, look at uh, geopolitical risks, look at uh, 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 humanitarian situation, uh, a number of hotspots, the fact that a number of peacekeepers has grown from some 30,000 to 1,000, 2,001 to more than 100,000 today. When you look at the fact that UN's budget has grown from 2.5 to currently 5.5, I'm talking only about core budget in the past 15 years. When you look at uh, 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 how, how dangerous it becomes or how, how uh, 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 big a risk is of diff- different pandemics, when you look at the new research which uh, tells the, the danger of uh, post-antibiotics world and so on and so on, then we uh, definitely need to you know, uh, uh, you know, stop a little bit and, and, and really reflect how, uh, as the whole world's community, we're going to adapt, adjust our behavior. How uh, are we going to modify the way we operate to be able to respond to all these challenges. And I think this is one of the, uh, one of the tasks for the UN in this ever-changing world, uh, in this disequilibrium, so to speak. We need to be able to operate and modify uh, the way we do job to, to really be fit for purpose. And this is, uh, this is uh, one of, uh, uh, I think, the highlights. Uh, uh, you know, we all talk about the need to be fit for purpose, but what really uh, does it mean? I really believe it means that we need to be able to develop the UN which remains relevant in today's world. You know, uh, the Westphalian uh, international order still prevails and will prevail uh, for time to come. Although there are a number of uh, you know, forces of different kind that, that threaten it, uh, uh, be it non-state armed groups such as fundamentalistic movements, 
namely Islamic group or Islamic State or Boko Haram and so on, or due to globalization. Uh, this is also another change we are faced with. Uh, sitting uh, at, the, uh, at the cafe just before coming to, to LSE between two meetings, at some point, all of us around the table were with, with our smartphones, uh, you know, mm. doing something. Are you sending emails or receiving emails or sending messages or making mm. some, uh, organizing some appointments and so on? We uh, increasingly, increasingly start to look like, uh, I guess you, uh, some of you at least are familiar with uh, uh, those humanoids called Uds, the, 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 the characters from Doctor Who. You know, they have uh, uh, this uh, uh, so-called, uh, they, they have their external brains and they're mm-hmm. interconnected with tubes. So we don't need tubes except if you need those special earphones to, to, uh, to use your smartphone. So we increasingly become you know, the planet of Uds, and uh, rightly so, uh, because in, in five or six years' time, 60% or, or even more than that of the adults will have smartphones, and uh, a lot of their lives will be organized around that. So are we, should we uh, uh, be fearful? Uh, should, we, should we be afraid of that? Or should we embrace this whole new set of industrial revolution uh, phenomenons that uh, wash over us. I believe that the UN uh, in the new world, in order to be fit for purpose, must be able to be innovative, must modify, must be able to adjust in order to remain, remain relevant. I believe also UN should embrace uh, the new knowledge that comes up uh, that uh, Austrian economists were, were pointing out. How to do it? Uh, uh, UN has been very successful in, in uh, past year or so. Uh, when, you look at two, when you look at 2015, you'll realize that a number of very important multilateral agreements were, were made. Uh, let me mention Sustainable Development Agenda 2030, uh, Sendai uh, Disaster Risk Reduction Framework, uh, Addis Ababa Action Agenda, uh, Climate Agreement uh, uh, reached in Paris and signed recently in New York, uh, reached in Paris in December. So a number of very important long-term uh, agreements were passed. Uh, additionally, last year, uh, significant work was done in uh, doing the peace architecture review, which uh, uh, resulted uh, recently in the, in the adoption of two uh, parallel resolutions, one on, in, uh, in front of the Security Council, the other one in front of the, uh, the General Assembly, that shows the way forward to be able to respond to the peace architecture, peace and security challenges in time, in time ahead. So a lot has been done uh, in order to set forward the agenda. Very recently, there was also a humanitarian summit, as you know, in Istanbul. Uh, there was a lot of mention about grand bargain, about the fact that uh, the costs of humanitarian needs are big, but Probably there is and there must be some solution uh, to circumvent uh, 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 problems or, or to bridge, uh, bridge uh, challenges and so on. So uh, this all, in my view, stands in sharp contrast, this success of doing good work in passing number of multilateral agreements, stands in sharp contrast with a very complex uh, situation we are, we are also faced way, then we need, to, we need to modify the way we do, we do things. Uh, also, what I've, uh, as I said, what I've tried to, to uh, give it a particular flavor is the, the, the em- putting emphasis on youth. Because, yes, probably all the research showed that a human being cannot choose better time to be born in human's history. But at the same time, uh, is it that our youth is really uh, happy with all the windows of opportunities we find. You know, 12% of uh, the, the, the youth globally, uh, in average, are unemployed. And this is uh, the, the, the highest on record. Uh, plus, uh, in, even back in the 70s, uh, I mean, I'm sure you know about that, uh, there's been uh, the, 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 uh, the youth theory came, came which uh, spoke about the great potential of the youth dividends, but also great risk unless young people are, fa- are faced with adequate windows of opportunities. So we need to keep that in mind as well. So what to do? How to modify our work? How to be able to respond to the challenges? 
in the given context. Well, I've tried to really offer some very concrete, concrete ideas. And uh, I think that one must not you know, remain vague or elusive. I think we need to concentrate and be able to show some very concrete, concrete examples. And studying this matter and, and being able to dwell deep in, in some of the materials and also being able to interview many people and hold meetings with a number of, uh, of undersecretaries, also uh, director generals of different organizations, special agencies, funds of the, of, the, of, the, of the United Nations, to be able to understand better the challenges. I actually find out that some uh, uh, steps really can be taken without uh, uh, totally... Uh, 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 destroying the, the, the current organization, but actually to make it move, make, make it uh, work in a more, 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 more smooth way or in a smoother way. Three pillars of the UN's work are something that is usually mentioned as where UN need to concentrate, concentrate efforts. It's peace and security, it's human rights agenda, and it's development. Uh, in order to achieve all, goals in all three, uh, we also need to be able to internally respond uh, and to uh, make sure that UN remains the core element of, and the core cohesion factor of the international order in order not to uh, uh, sideline it, not to make it a redundancy. Uh, so when it comes to the peace and security, as I mentioned, uh, very recently there was this review on peace architecture. There was also... Uh, very uh, useful uh, set of resolutions that were passed, uh, which emphasize one very important thing, in my view, and that is the fact that we all need to realize that you know, contributing to peace and security is a job for all of us. It is not uh, this or that member state. It is not this or that UN Secretary's <coughs> department. It is not this or that uh, agency fund or program. We all need to be uh, on, 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 uh, we, we all need to be part of the process. And that is why I believe that certain modification within uh, the United Nations system need to be, need to be uh, implemented. Uh, I claim that there is need to establish a so-called UN Peace Operations Group. Uh, so let me share some ideas how it, or some, some views how it operates right now. Uh, now there is a so-called Chief Executives Board for Coordination, uh, chaired by Secretary General, and it gathers 29 uh, specialized agencies, funds, and programs. Uh, so special agencies, programs such as uh, UNDP, for example, or UN Women, or UNICEF, or uh, World Bank, IMF, and so on. All of them. They meet twice a year. But I believe that, that, that there is certain detachment from the Secretariat, I believe that uh, some more should be done to blend better resources, uh, both in terms of strategies, uh, analytics, and implementation. And that is why I believe we need to set up this so-called peace operations group. Because right now, uh, there is uh, uh, a gap between what we expect from uh, UN country teams and what we, also, uh, and what we claim to be uh, the role of the United Nations to make sure that we use and exhaust all the uh, peaceful measures uh, in order to maintain world's peace and security. In the past 25 or even 30 years, we have spoken a lot about the need to employ uh, mechanisms or tools such as mediation, prevention. We have spoken a lot about uh, uh, early warning uh, and, and, and so on. So after 25 or 30 years, today, we pass resolutions which still emphasize that, but we need to make them operational. So this peace operations group should actually bring together uh, key undersecretary general, ones who are in charge of political affairs, but also peacekeeping, also f uh, field uh, service, humanitarian assistance, economic social affairs, but also key uh, leaders of UN uh, agencies, funds, and programs as a, again, UNDP or UN Women, uh, women and, and, and so on. Right now, within this Chief Executives Board of Coordination, there exist three teams. One is so-called high-level panel on, or high-level committee on programs, high-level committee on management, and there is also UN Development Group. So there's no mention of the Peace Operations Group. And I really believe there's uh, a missing link, because if we want 
to make UN country teams really able to respond to mandates, uh, uh, tasks they're charged with, if we really want them to be able to uh, implement the so-called HIPPO's uh, recommendations, then we need to do something about it. Uh, when I say HIPPO, I mean uh, high-level panel on peace operations uh, made of uh, experts that produced a set of recommendations that actually look at uh, the bigger quality of peacekeeping missions in the future. And they claim that there should be, uh, there should be more uh, uh, frequently reviewed missions. And from talking to, to, to different people, I realize it's really a good recommendation because sometimes we say, well, this is a mandate of your mission and we will review it in five or six years. In the meantime, a lot has happened and we end up in, in inefficient usage of, of, of our resources, which are very scarce. Uh, there has to be more dialogue uh, between key stakeholders before mission starts rather than halfway through. There has to be also... Uh, uh, a possibility for so-called tailor-made or sequence mandates and so on. Uh, so this is the work that this UN Peace Operations Group can do and it can make make difference uh, in, in uh, uh, providing uh, Security Council and Peace Building Commission with adequate inputs to make sure that political decisions that are taken are the best possible political decisions. Right now, uh, it seems that there is uh, uh, duplications in efforts. It seems that there is a lot of competition between different UN agencies for conducting work afield, and so on, and so on. And that's the impression I have from, from talking to, to different, different people. Uh, plus, uh, uh, research shows that, and I've seen it the other day, and I was, I was quite, quite struck with that figure, that uh, in average, 20% of the money used for certain programs or projects uh, for people who are in human humanitarian need is wasted. Uh, either see fund off uh, through corruption or fraud or uh, inefficient activities or uh, due to competition between different UN agencies. It's just uh, 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 local uh, uh, entities that, that are in the position to uh, uh, spend that money actually manage to uh, accumulate uh, sheer profit from doing the same thing, same thing but paid from two addresses, and, and, and so on and so on. So we need to be able to respond to that. And this is exactly one of uh, the areas where I believe uh, uh, new technologies can tremendously help. Uh, I've seen the presentations which uh, suggest that, for example, the blockchain uh, technology can incredibly help making sure that every transaction is recorded, making sure that every entity knows where the money uh, goes and for what is used, uh, sort of, uh, you know, relief coin, you know, as you know, we, we, have the, 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 we have this invention of bitcoins. And that can tremendously help making uh, humanitarian activities a lot more efficient and turning attention from immediate, you know, cash transfers or providing shelter, so which is still uh, 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 needed, and there is, as there is, you know, as we speak, 80 million people worldwide that need some sort of humanitarian assistance. Uh, so moving away a little bit from that towards more development, because uh, usually people who are, who are in humanitarian need uh, are either refugees, uh, nowadays uh, also growing migrants. Uh, they, uh, uh, we, we all find it very hard to repatriate them. Uh, it's been uh, the lowest repatriation rate since early 80s, what we have right now. There's uh, other possibilities like uh, uh, integrating them into a society and then it obviously means they're going to stay where they are for years and that's why you, then you need more development, otherwise you, you, you get segregated society. Or uh, they want to resettle somewhere else but that becomes increasingly, increasingly difficult given political constraints. So these are all uh, very uh, uh, obvious challenges we are faced with. And this brings me also to the need to highlight what I believe should be uh, a specific role for the next Deputy Secretary General. I believe that the Deputy Secretary General within the hierarchy should uh, have more precise description, job description. Uh, I believe that person should be actually in charge of, with a more robust uh, role, should be in charge of mediation, prevention, also talking to regional arrangements. Uh, one of the uh, recommendations we have is that uh, UN should be able to build partnerships with 
different regional arrangements. African Union, for example, or uh, Arab League, or ASEAN countries, or uh, 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 OSCE, and so on and so on. These are obvious, obvious needs. And I believe that by uh, defining more precise role for Deputy Secretary General, we could do a lot better and we could do, uh, a lot, uh, we could do it a lot more efficient. Uh, on um, the next uh, uh, pillar of activity, which is sustainable development, which is very dear to my heart, which is actually the core of, of the activity we need to be able to, to pursue in, in years to come, because it is only through the development that one in the long run reduces peace and security costs or reduces humanitarian needs. It's development. Of course, it's much easier to say this than to do, but I think as never in our history, now we have a very complex agenda. Uh, uh, some people believe it's too complex. It's too, too complicated. It's uh, with uh, 17 goals, 169 targets, uh, I mean, uh, a, a huge dashboard of indicators we need to make sure we, we follow, up, follow up and so on. But for the first time ever, it's been a bottom-up approach uh, in defining a sustainable development agenda. And it's there for the next 15 years, but rest assured it will roll on. In Africa, they're aware of it. They, they already have Agenda 2063. So of, for sure, it will, it will continue. But we need to you know, grab the momentum. We need to seize the momentum. We need to understand that this is really the, the very important time in our history where we should uh, uh, you know, s start working uh, in, uh, consistently in uh, making sure that uh, all the parts of the world, little by little, make sure that they, they meet, meet different indicators and meet different goals. So in order to better organize, <coughs> I propose a couple of things. Uh, one is that, first of all, we need to have, uh, uh, for each goal, uh, each and every goal, we need to have a leading agency or fund a program uh, so that we know what everybody's supposed to do, exactly to avoid duplications and inefficiencies. Uh, but it doesn't mean that particular agency or fund the program should have <coughs> exclusive ownership or monopolize over certain SDG. I think multi-sectoral approach or, or rather cluster-shaped approach is much more important. We need to make sure that everybody is on the same, same page. And whatever we do, it, it, it really meets uh, the goal and, and, and combines different resources we have. Uh, for example, <coughs> Uh, there's a sustainable development goal which talks about five, which talks about empowering women and, 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 and gender equality and so on. And obviously, UN Women is, sounds reasonable that this agency should be uh, leading the, the work. But I like their approach in terms that they are aware it should not be their monopoly. It has to be a lot more, uh, lot more uh, 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 multi-sectoral, uh, as uh, World Bank also does some work, as also UNICEF uh, does, does some work in some specific fields, and so on and so on. So this is one of very important goals that should be, uh, or, or tasks, rather, which should be addressed relatively early in, in the process, early in the office. Uh, secondly, I think that, I mentioned it, this UN Development Group should turn into UN Sustainable Development Group, co-chaired by uh, UNDP's Chief Administrator and Human Rights High Commissioner. Why is that? Uh, human rights agenda permit the whole 2030 uh, agenda. Uh, there's a number of cultural, economic, social human rights that need to be addressed. And we need to make sure that everybody's on board. And that is why this cannot be handled, uh, you know, single-handed uh, uh, approach. There has to be more engagement. And that is why I believe this development group should get transformed into, into a... Uh, uh, sustainable Development Group. And plus, uh, there's another uh, segment in this whole uh, mosaic, which is, in my view, very important. These are, these are called uh, Regional Economic Commissions. Uh, they, uh, they exist. Uh, they do some work. But I believe they have to take this opportunity and uh, transform into so-called uh, Regional Fora for Sustainable Development to bring together not only government representatives, but also uh, uh, other, uh, other uh, stakeholders, academia, civil sector, IFIs, uh, and, uh, and, and private sector, and so on. We need to use sustainable development agenda to make sure we are able to mobilize you know, global resources. It is actually striking to, 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 uh, uh, to, to learn that 
for example, WHO, uh, World Health Organization, spends uh, uh, their budget is $2.5 uh, billion per year, whereas uh, Bill's and Melissa Gates Foundation spends $4.5 billion, billion per year. So there is huge money uh, afield. Private sector spends enormous amount of money. So we need to make sure that everybody's on, 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 on the same page. So we need to make sure that UN's work, because UN should... Uh, cannot it should not do everything, but UN should be in the heart of the process, making sure that we mobilize all the resources and better coordinate amongst 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 the donors, which has not been the case up to now, as as there's 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 been a lot of lot of different examples. So in order to uh, be able to to respond to all, all this, I also think that some you know housekeeping matters should be should be taken taken front. And uh, I believe that very early in the process, uh, Secretary General should ask uh, or set up an international panel of experts who will uh, do a deep review of the current budget structure. And I believe those people should uh, rather come from the outside of the system than from the inside of the system. We need to you know, have everybody on board from different regions uh, to make sure that we are able and that the next... Uh, uh, budget process will already start to you know, respond to this growing, growing needs. So we need to uh, be able to uh, produce budget which is uh, going to, uh, uh, I mean, remain in the core budget, but which is going to comply with, uh, with the, the other programs and the activities of agencies, funds, and, 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 and programs of the UN. Because currently this is really not the case. I've, I've seen, uh, uh, you know, talking to, to representatives from, from different countries, like small island economies or least developed or landlocked countries. There is a number of uh, documents which are passed, but there's really no reflection uh, in, in the core budget. At the same time, uh, the structure of the, of, of the budget is uh, pretty worrisome. Uh, 74% of the budget goes for personal costs. And despite all the attempts to review that, to, to, uh, to uh, you know, change the practices and so on, it continues to grow. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, uh, back in 2000, 2001, budget stood at $2.5 billion. Today it's 5.5. We're talking biennium's budget. So uh, the next one comes for 2018, 2019. Of course, it will be very difficult to change things immediately. But I, I think we need to kick off the process or readjusting uh, what we what we really want to do with the, uh, with, the with, with the UN uh, with the UN's activity in the UN UN budget. Again, I believe that what UN does, so-called UN development assistance frameworks, need actually to be sort of a lever to make sure that other donors, other activities uh, uh, are, are, are pretty much compatible with what uh, uh, we all agreed as our uh, main task, which is uh, reaching uh, sustainable development in, in the next, in, 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 throughout, throughout this uh, century. Uh, also, what I think uh, uh, should be done early in the office, it is to set up uh, Office for Youth to make sure that uh, we really respond to the need and, and the ambition to empower young people, to give them a chance, to make them feel, uh, 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 you know, uh, part of the process. Uh, that is why I have uh, uh, outlined principles like inclusiveness, engagement, responsibility. Uh, uh, you know, uh, going back to statistics, but uh, uh, very important uh, resolution on empowering women was 1325. Uh, more or less the same uh, sort of a resolution, but referring to the young, uh, was under the number 2250. So it took 1,000 resolutions in between to also address the, 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 the needs and, and, and the wishes uh, and desires and, and, and uh, uh, ambitions of, of the young people. So this is uh, very important. This is of, of, of key importance because in today's world, 48% uh, of the young people 48% of the world population are under 25. So, uh, and, and it will probably continue to change given the demographics, especially African demographics and, and some, some other areas. Also, uh, what I uh, envisage is that there is uh, 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 
there, there is need to uh, make that whole the, uh, the world, all the member states feel ownership of the world organization. And that's why uh, the secretariat has to be truly global, uh, result-oriented, efficient, but also truly global. And uh, that is one of uh, my uh, proposals to move the seat of the Deputy Secretary General to Nairobi, which is also one of the UN headquarters. I think uh, all the world should feel uh, the ownership of the process, and I see no reason why we can't do it, especially uh, given the modern technologies, possibilities to uh, communicate, you know, uh, I mean, always 24-7 on anything that matters. And plus, Africa is, uh, in, in, is a consumer of 80% of peacekeeping missions. Uh, most of the development needs are still there, and, and the many challenges ahead. So... This is where I should probably uh, stop and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, hope for the possibility to continue through mm. questions, and answers, questions and answers. But uh, let me say that it's been really, again, my great pleasure to be here today and be able to exchange views with, with you on such an important and interesting topic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and, and indeed you did put a lot of issues on, on the table and you also had some comments on the process. So I think I'll let you come in with questions, and, and um, so we already have someone over there. Please introduce yourself. And Hi there. Uh, my name is Emily Laurie. I'm a LSE alumni, and I currently work on a campaign called the Global Goals Campaign. It's all about making the new Global Goals famous. Um, with the idea being that if everyone around the world knows about the goals, then they can help make sure they're implemented. So really interesting to hear you talk. Uh, just a couple of questions. One, um, yeah, interesting to hear about your idea about having a specific agency or entity sort of leading on each of the 17 goals. Um, it'd be great to hear a bit more about that and how feasible you think that is. Because obviously UN Women in Goal 5, it's really clear cut. But you think about UNICEF, obviously, and child rights cut across all the different goals. So it'd be interesting to think about like, practically how you think those entities or agencies could really be um, decided upon, I guess. And another one, brilliant, again, to hear you about your focus on youth, um, and you talked a bit about the office, office for Youth that you mentioned, and obviously at the moment there's a UN Special Envoy for Youth, um, and again, it'd be great to hear about a bit more about the office, and if you think it would be his, increasing his mandate, or would it be a totally separate kind of institution within the UN? Okay, I, I think we should... Take them one by one, so, so please. Can you think of uh, oh, oh, yeah. uh, well, I mean, thank you very much. Very, very good questions. Uh, and uh, really, uh, yeah, I think to the core of the matter, uh, it's going to be difficult to address this SDG's agenda in a way I propose. But I think it's inevitable. Again, for different reasons. Uh, but probably the most evident reason is that you know, we have you know, growing competition between UN agencies. In, in uh, uh, you know fighting for their uh, relevance, and uh, then they compete for uh, you know for, for resources from from different donors, and then they are supposed to deliver a field, and then report back and so mm -hmm. on. But I, I think that instead of uh, uh, you know giving them incentives to be competitive, I, I believe we need to give them incentives to uh, better coordinate. And, and develop partnerships. So one of the, you know, uh, uh, my approach is to really put emphasis on extending partnerships and, and better coordination. That's, I think, where we like. I mean, uh, I have my national background, and, and I've seen, uh, I've seen a number of uh, different examples how it is difficult to address this, this problem of, of coordination. So I can imagine how it is difficult at, at, at this level. But... Uh, in Montenegro, I think we're a good example of how UN can improve efficiency and avoid duplication. Uh, some years ago, uh, it was 2009, we joined uh, the pilot project of delivering as one in, under the new, uh, new form of delivering, new, new form of uh, how UN does uh, or implements UN development assistance frameworks. And it's been very successful. Under one roof, uh, well-coordinated, uh, there's a leading uh, uh, agency representative that coordinates among the others. Everybody knows what others are doing. We, of course, there's some specific projects with, that, that different agencies take care of, but everybody's on board and everybody knows 
what what happens, uh, and that has increased the efficiency of the of the of the program. And I think that this is what can be done elsewhere. Right now, there is even 40 or 50 countries that implement the same approach. And I think there's a growing need that that we use these so-called uh, uh, UNDAFs uh, to respond to the new realities. Uh, we end this year. We end the current cycle, and we have already negotiated 2017-2021, which really addresses sustainable development uh, uh, goals and, and priorities. And again, we have you know, UNDP, also UNICEF, and many others working really as a team and not competing amongst each other. And that's a good example because then it opens the door to other donors to adapt on what, what we do. It's, it's tailor-made. Uh, for uh, addressing specific countries' needs, but at the same time, it opens the door for other donors to build on that and make sure that there is the best possible efficiency. So, whatever, for example, I mean, Eric knows, uh, I mean, has vast experience with EBRD, and EBRD also, you know, supports social entrepreneurship, supports, um, you know, infrastructure development, and so on, uh, and it all adds up to what sustainable development agenda is about. But we need to make sure that uh, we plan, we don't don't compete. Uh, on the Office for the Youth, uh, absolutely. I've, uh, I've, uh, you know, one of the meetings I've had is with the Special Envoy and, uh, for Youth Policies. And it was, it was uh, uh, you know, a very good meeting we had. And I think through the exchange of views, we came to uh, this, uh, uh, we, we came through to, to, to this idea that probably there is need for something more robust that will be able to reach out uh, and, and handle uh, matters for, of, of youth. I think we need to rejuvenate a little bit uh, the, whole si- the, whole, the whole system of management within the UN. We need to be able to reach out to regional arrangements, to local communities. Uh, look at uh, what the, some of the current very uh, you know, growing threats are. Uh, Viol- uh, uh, extremism, uh, terrorism, and so on. And it's actually young people who easily get seduced. Uh, why? Because they somehow remain you know, isolated or mm. in a way segregated, uh, not being offered Windows opportunities. And it is actually young people who must take action to be able to uh, enrich dialogue in, in a society. Uh, and when I say society, I, I also mean global society. Some of the problems we are faced with is, is due to the, uh, uh, due to, uh, 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 the resistance of certain structures to accept further globalization. So uh, I, I think uh, even, even those most radical ones are in a way a resistance to, to the process of globalization. So we need to reach out and be able not to, uh, you know, to, to, to engage with the different, different structures of, of, of society. So this is why I think uh, this, is, this must not be you know, a bureaucratic move, setting up one more office to spend more money on this, but actually a proactive engagement to make sure that uh, young people start to realize that there is really someone who, uh, within the UN who is uh, willing to, 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 uh, uh, to respond to their needs. One here and then one in the back. Uh, my name is Keith Hindle, and uh, I used to be a UN correspondent. For the BBC. So the first advice I'd give you is always talk to the microphone and not to your chairman. Don't bother with your chairman at all. <laughs> always talk to us. We're the people who count if you're trying to get our votes. But the other th- incredible thing about your talk, which I admire the fluency, I think it's very good, the less you can use the speech, the printed speech in front of you, the better. You're clearly the master of all this organisational stuff. But you didn't mention the most important problem facing the UN, Syria. Have you got any ideas to solve that problem? I'll make sure I talk to the, to, to, to yeah. the microphone. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess being, being going correspondent, uh, you're probably one of the last to be... Uh, to be talked to about uh, the UN Charter and uh, what responsibilities uh, are there for, for the Secretary General. Uh, by saying this, I, again, I, I, 
I have no intention to uh, you know uh, escape the topic. I think this topic is the most pressing one. You know, but uh, ask today about Syria after five six years of the carnage there and millions of displaced people, migrants. It's been it has put under tremendous strain the whole European Union. Uh, I think that the best you can do is to really try to draw lessons. I'm not sure we have been able to draw lessons from certain certain situations. Uh, or at least if this whole set of uh, crises we are faced with is going to stimulate uh, everyone to start drawing lessons, uh, then it's already a certain added value. On Syria, uh, the only way forward right now is, is peace talks. And, and, uh, and the model probably used in cases of uh, 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 nuclear deal with Iran or, or some similar case where international community shows uh, you know, total commitment and so on, that's the only f- uh, uh, viable way forward. Mm-hmm. I, see, I see no other option. Uh, but at the same time, uh, among certain lessons that need to be drawn is, in my view, uh, you know, the, the, the aftermath, one of the, one of the consequences of the crisis is this uh, uh, you know, horrendous migration uh, problem mm-hmm. or refugees problem, which also shows the need to be more proactive. Uh, you know, after so many sleepless nights uh, and hours of talk and, and uh, uh, discussions uh, within the EU, with Turkey and so on, at some point, we'll see about the future of the agreement, but at some point, they managed to reach the agreement on how to handle migrants. The very next day, uh, UNHCR comes up and says, well, this is controversial. This is even maybe illegal. Uh, this can go on like this and so on. Uh, we cannot allow reduction of standards for those people who are asylum seekers and so on. So this clearly shows the need for better coordination and more proactiveness. So from the day one, not after months or after years of, of the problem. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, several hotspots, uh, and uh, the only way forward is is uh, uh, renewed and, and refreshed commitment through peace talks, first of all, and then through uh, the employment of different, uh, different mechanisms to, to provide a uh, uh, number of displaced people with a, with a, with a certain relief. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I like the new approach, which means uh, uh, combining humanitarian with development needs, because the worst or the last thing you want to see is in some you know, uh, Syrian rim countries uh, like Lebanon or, or Jordan, uh, the, the, the potential rise of internal hostilities between the uh, uh, local population and, and people who are refugees and so on, competing for jobs that may I mean, create another horrible problem. So th- this is where more proactive, uh, proactive uh, uh, approaches obviously both required and, and needed. And I think the UN should not be, you know, uh, in a way, standing aside. Uh, 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 giving the impression of losing relevance, but should be able to, to come up and, uh, without taking sides, Secretary General must be impartial. Secretary General must be, uh, first of all, focused on, on how best to use UN's tools and resources to uh, you know, alleviate situation afield and help uh, you know, uh, big promise, make, make, make uh, action that, that will uh, draw the problem to, to the end. Right now, or we can talk about a series of different different mistakes that have been made. So that's why I also believe uh, uh, we need to start drawing lessons. Can I push you a little bit on, on this? So, so, um, so there are obviously, and you alluded to you know, some things you can do once uh, peace has has been, uh, or at least a ceasefire has been negotiated. So, so would you be? think that the UN should consider um, armed intervention or should endorse uh, uh, armed intervention? Or should the UN be involved in setting up safe zones in Syria to try to to deal with the, you know, immediate uh, exposure to violence that people are experiencing? Well, first of all, I don't think there's there's any appetite for any kind of a military solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, it's been it's been evident from from, from day one, uh, but there has to be more appetite for more political solutions, mm-hmm. and for more I, I should say aggressive in positive terms aggressive approach of the international community mm-hmm. to address 
problems at hand. Mm. Uh, again, this is much easier to say than to do, mm. but I don't think that uh, UN's role or Secretary General's role ends with appointing special mm. representative mm. to mm. hold talks or to try to broker some deal. I think there has to be, uh, again, more proactive engagement, mm. uh, which even not necessarily means... Uh, you know, being very loud and, and mm. omnipresent and so mm. on, mm. and so on. But it means also to be very active, very consistent, very, very consistent, mm. and and be 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 present at, mm. at meetings, be able to uh, push for things and so on. Mm. Sometimes, you know, we spend, uh, we see that that the process takes takes days, weeks, uh, sometimes even months. Uh, uh, Security Council remains in deadlock and so on. I think that, that there has to be more honest and, and, and straight talk, but also there, there is room for, uh, for, the sec- for, for the Secretary General to be, to be more proactive. Please, in the back. Good afternoon. Um, James Cullinsey from LSE. Um, Mr. Minister, welcome back. Uh, you came and spoke a, a few years ago, and uh, it's very clear that you have presented um, – a strong agenda for what you would do if appointed, and and you've obviously given this a lot of thought, but there's a huge problem that you're, of course, facing, um, which is um, the question of Russia. We know that relations between Montenegro and Russia have gone through a very bad time indeed. Uh, Moscow put out a very strong statement when Montenegro signed up to EU sanctions, um, which uh, it, it was remarkable to read a country like Russia almost in tears about what Montenegro had done. And then, of course, your decision... Um, to apply for NATO membership has also infuriated Moscow. Um, And that brings to the question, you need that vote. What are you doing to try and win over Russia for your candidacy, and how confident are you that you'll actually get it? Thank you. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I I believe that, uh, and we have started that that dialogue with with Russia. I think it is important to to, uh, understand that... uh, there is nothing, uh, uh, there are no particular alternative motives behind our decision to join EU or NATO. Uh, since the day one, even before the referendum 10 years ago, but since day one, and, and uh, it, tomorrow it will be 10 years since we uh, adopted the Declaration of Independence in our parliament. So since the day one, uh, we pushed for the membership of the EU and NATO. So there's nothing new about it. So this, th- there's been a sequence of steps. And at some point last year, in December, we, we got invited, and hopefully the ratification procedure will, will end relatively soon uh, upon the, uh, uh, or after the protocol was signed uh, some, some weeks ago in, in, in Brussels. So my approach has always been, and uh, I believe it, it, it sort of, it, 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 you know, uh, it meets uh, uh, some some fertile soil uh, to, uh, to to emphasize that you know on this we have certain disagreement, but it shouldn't mean that bilaterally we should not cooperate in many different fields. Uh, I was in Moscow last week. Uh, one of uh, so I had several meetings. Uh, one of uh, the week, the events was I, I gave a lecture at the Diplomatic Academy. And I received this sort of questions. And uh, I was very happy to, to, to point out that this year we marked 305 years since we first established political relationship between uh, Montenegro and, and, and Tsarist Russia in those years. So we should be proud of that. There's been, uh, there's been a huge history. There's also the fact that uh, Russia was de facto guarantor, Montenegro in uh, de facto independence throughout the 19th century and so on. But today we have disagreements over this, but it shouldn't mean that we should sustain disagreements over everything. I think we have managed to develop economic cooperation. There's a lot of tourists coming to, to, to Montenegro. Also there's potential for cultural, educational cooperation and, and so on. And I think that this, this is the right, right uh, avenue to take. And, and I think the only feasible one to take. Uh, uh, so our, our membership to the NATO, and I'm, and I'm, I'm quite confident the decision of NATO to, to ask Montenegro to, to join it's not about, you know, poking in the eye of Russia or, com- or, or wanting to confront with, with that, that, that country. I think that that should not be the, seen as, 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 as the case. And I think we, we, again, need to take more positive approach. What I like is that uh, recently there was, uh, uh, there was uh, 
uh, meeting between NATO and Russia, so it restored the, the way, uh, the, the, it restored the Council's operations, and I, I hope that there will be more meetings to come because it is only through, through honest dialogue we could, we could uh, come to a sustainable solution of, of any, any problem. So, uh, so that, that's on, on, on bilateral issues, but you're quite right when you say that, uh, well, I, I would need that one as well, and that's why I, uh, I'm quite interested in, in, in sustaining this, this dialogue and presentations. And at the same time, uh, I, 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 you know, I praise the, the position of, of, of the Russian Federation that claims that the next Secretary General should come from the Eastern European Group. Uh, when you look at the, 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 the countries candidates come from, most of the countries are really also EU, NATO. So I don't think it should, it should uh, prevent any of those candidates if eventually selected the best uh, uh, or, or deprived of, of uh, Russian vote. Uh, I, I don't think it should be seen that way. But, of course, I think the, the, the best thing we all could do is really to present, present our credentials, present our ideas, present uh, the way we believe the UN should operate, and I guess uh, somebody will eventually deserve support. Anyone else? Yeah, you can. You can if you like. Why do you think the East European Group should choose an ex-secretary general? I mean, that's not choosing on merit, is it? And if we are choosing on groups. Surely, women next before East Europe. So, uh, obviously, it's no carving stone that it is the turn of the Eastern European Group. But it's also true that uh, throughout the UN's 70 years of, of history, there has never been Eastern European Group's uh, Secretary General. There has been three from Western Group. There has been uh, one from Latin America, two from Africa, two from Asia. But there has never been one from Eastern European and group, and we believe that uh, we should take it into account, definitely. That is probably why uh, uh, there has never been uh, a bigger number of candidates from this group than, than, than this time around. Mm -hmm. But of course, I fully agree with you. It should be based on merits and, and, and ideas and visions rather than only uh, you know, selection by groups. But also, I'm quite confident that as Eastern Europeans, we are able to, to uh, offer uh, uh, arguments, good visions, good, uh, good ideas to make UN uh, fit for purpose in, in, in the next uh, five or ten years or seven years, depends, whatever decision is taken about, about terms in office. Uh, and that will also make uh, uh, Eastern European group feel, feel relevant, important, uh, will encourage the, our, our further contribution and so on. On, on uh, gender parity, uh, uh, well, uh, I'm obviously unable to, to, uh, to resolve that. Uh, there are technical possibilities, but I'm definitely not, not, not able to, to respond to that. But, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm quite uh, empathic to, to uh, you know, gender parity issue. And I don't think that gender parity or gender equality ends with appointing Secretary General who is female. I think it's much more than that. Uh, when I was prime minister, I was the first in the region who appointed female defense minister. Uh, so, you know, and there are decisions you can take and start changing the way uh, things are done. Uh, I believe that if I'm selected secretary general, then definitely a female one, female deputy secretary general should be appointed. Uh, if, uh, for example, this time next year, I'm, I'm in the situation to appoint or, 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 or uh, offer general assembly some appointments, I can always make sure that I get uh, several candidates, female candidates as well, encourage countries uh, to uh, offer female candidates. I'm sure there are excellent, excellent candidates, and I'm, I'm sure that, that uh, uh, significant change can, can, be, can be noticed. And, 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 and I think it is for the, for the best of, of the UN's and, and the world's interest. There are even some women East Europeans. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so I think we are coming uh, to an end of this. I, th I think it's been very interesting from, uh, you know, as I said, both the substance but, but the process. This is really an opportunity to engage more people than normally 
are engaged in, in you know, some quite specific things, and you brought up some things you had very specific suggestions of, of um, how they should walk, vote, um, uh, how they should work going forward. And, and I really encourage you also to go and look at, there's a very nice website, uh, 147 Billion, which is an initiative to try to create more transparency around uh, this uh, um, process. And, and you can look there for, at all the candidates, and you, know, you have your own uh, uh, material there, and I think that is, is a, you know, an innovation which has, uh, you know, you know, both in terms of process, but also in, in actually getting a lot more um, uh, information on, on the table. So we, you know, these decisions can be, be made in, in, in a more transparent manner. And of course, even this issue of, of Russia's role is, of course, uh, something that I think it does matter that there is a more tr uh, transparent process because you know, I think the even a country like Russia has to uh, take uh, that into account when it makes its um, a decision on, on, on who to vote for in this process. So thank you very much for sharing uh, this with us and, and for taking time to, to stop by at, at LSE. And uh, we wish all good luck. And, and of course, tomorrow, uh, as, as we said earlier, there's a, a debate. I don't know how many. Do you know how many are coming, actually? Uh, it will be three, three candidates. Three candidates tomorrow who, who will be um, uh, debating. So it's you, uh, Vuk Jeremic, and Antonio Guterres. Antonio Guterres. So, so, it's, um, so it's a subset and no, no women, but, but uh, as you know, there are some uh, very competitive women in, in the race. So thank you again for coming, and, and uh, good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much.